Isaiah chapter 1. What does the Lord want here? We're going to look at three things today if we have time. We're going to look at the pictures of Christ. We're going to look at powerless prayer. And then we're going to look at providing for Christ. Let me show you what we're talking about here. Isaiah chapter 1. Start reading with me, please, at verse 10. First thing we're going to look at is the pictures of Christ. See if you can see it as we read these first few verses. It says, Hear the word of the Lord. You rulers of Sodom, give ear to the instructions of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Then I want you to see powerless prayer. Look at verse 15. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Why won't he listen? Because look, your hands are covered with blood. Then I want you to see providing for Christ. Verse 16, 17, look what he says. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good. How will you do good? Look what he says. Seek justice by reproving the ruthless, defending the orphan, and plead for the widow. Now, what does God want here? You see what God wants in the next three verses. Come now, let us, we're looking for three things here. First thing he wants is he wants reason. Let us reason together. Then he wants removal. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, They will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. There is a third thing here he wants, and he wants righteousness. He says righteousness in verse 27. He says, Zion will be redeemed with justice and repentant ones with righteousness. Now, the first thing he wants is he wants reason. If they had been reasonable, they would wash themselves and make themselves clean from their sins and live righteous lives. Now, Wednesday night, Wednesday morning, I woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and for some reason, I just started thinking about, it says, he wants them to wash themselves. Make yourselves clean and wash yourselves from your sins. Now, what is he talking about there? The reason that got my attention is they're doing all kinds of sacrifices. They're going to the temple over and over and over again. Why do they need to wash themselves? Back up here. In verse 8, something starts to change here. Before, he was talking as a father speaks to a son. He was speaking to the nation of Judah, and he treated them as a father would treat a son. In verse 8, it starts to change. It starts to get 
personal. It's personal before, but now it gets really personal. It is about a relationship that loves intensely. Why? He is now talking as a husband would talk to a wife. There's two relationships going on here, father, parent to a child, and a husband to a wife. And it starts transitioning here. He starts talking as a wife to a wife from a, from a husband. Now, nobody can hurt you the way a child can hurt you if you're a parent. You know what I'm talking about. And nobody can hurt you the way a wife can hurt you if you're a husband, or vice versa. If you love intensely and you commit yourself wholly to that person, what do you do? One of the things that goes with the territory is you've set yourself up to be hurt. You're vulnerable to that. That is what's happening here. In spite of everything that we looked at in the last couple of weeks and how badly they've behaved, and they have been acting horrible, he still loves them. He's hurt. You can hear the emotion in his, ver in his voice as he's talking. But no matter what he does, he does not stop loving them, and he does not stop working the plan that he has for them. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1, listen to what he says. He's going to bring this up again later. He says, where is the certificate of divorce by which I sent your mother away? God is speaking to them as a wife here, but Judah suffered separation permanently? No, but only for a time. Why? Because God never filled out the paperwork. Yes, we're separated for a while, but I never took that paperwork to court and filed. We are not divorced. And guess what? I'm taking you back. That's what he's saying in Isaiah chapter 50. Now, knowing that, knowing that this is a husband talking to a wife, what is he talking about in verse 16 when he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean? Think about something. You've heard that before. Husbands? You've heard that phrase before. Where have you heard it? Ephesians chapter 5, Paul gives instructions to the husbands. What is his instructions, husbands? What are you supposed to do with your wives? Husbands, verses 25 to 27, let me read. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might, what? Sanctify her. How does he sanctify her? Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. You wash her with the word. Why? That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Come back to Isaiah chapter 1. That is exactly what God is doing with his wife here. He is trying to wash her. And how is he trying to wash her? We started reading. What's the first thing that he says in verse 10? He says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God. He is trying to wash her with the word. <clears throat> Does anybody have a really good explanation what it means to wash 
your wife with the Word of God. I read commentaries this week, and I read some really strange stuff. Some people I really admire and respect says this is talking about bathing her in holy water. I have no idea what he's talking about. Okay? It says you wash her with the word. One clue here. How did, uh, when Satan came into the garden, who did he deceive? Did he deceive Adam? No. He deceived the woman. Men, it is your responsibility to protect her, not just physically, but to protect her from the lies of the enemy. And how do you do that? The lies of the enemy will lead her to what? To sin. She's vulnerable in a way that you're not. It is your job to use the word of God to protect her. It takes the truth of God's word to do that. What did they do with a woman when she was to be married to a king and become a queen? What did they do? Esther 2 says, For the days of her purification were completed as follows. Six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women. Now, does that apply to us? Pretty soon here, we're going to go home. And what are we going to do? While the Israeli program is going on down for about seven Jewish years, we're going to be getting married. What are we going to do? We're going to have the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. We are Christ's bride. What is he doing with us? He's purifying us with the word of God. He's preparing us. It takes the word of God to do that. Now, does that apply to Isaiah and God's relationship to Israel? When you get home, there's too much here to read. Husbands and wives, I want you to read Ezekiel chapter 16. I'm just going to read pieces of it. This is how God describes his relationship, and he's speaking in this section here. He's speaking specifically to Jerusalem, just like he's speaking to Jerusalem here in Isaiah chapter 1. Listen to what he says. You are at the time of love, so I spread my skirt over you. And he's talking about when a woman is ready to be married. I also swore to you and entered a covenant. What is marriage? What is the marriage relationship? It is a covenant relationship. It's a promise. I am making a promise to you. I made a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. Then I bathed you with water. I washed you. See, he describes what he did for them. He took them, and it says, when he describes how he took them, Jerusalem, he says, do you know who your father was, and do you know who your mother was? He says, you were from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite. Your mother was a Hittite. Jerusalem had the same moral character as they did, but for no reason that nobody understands, I chose you of all the nations. I cared for you when you were alone and vulnerable, and I treated you as something special, and I married you. It's how he describes it in Ezekiel chapter 16. But then verse 15 in that chapter says, after it says that she became a royal city, you trusted in your beauty, and you played the harlot because of your fame. That is exactly what we're looking at here. The wife became proud of the royalty that God gave his wife, and now she's in sin, and she's playing the harlot. So what is he going to do? You see that word? He says, let us reason together. 
The word reason means to argue. Uh, guys, husband, and wives, do you ever argue? You ever? Oh, okay. I must be the only one. Okay. Marilyn usually wins, just to let you know. <laughs> do you hear the emotion in his voice as he starts to argue with her? He has tried. He has tried to get her to pay attention, to change her behavior, to stop hurting him, to stop playing the harlot. He has made him a promise. I will bless you. I give you blessing and cursing, and you choose cursing? Listen, you are built for praise. Your name means praise. But you're a curse right now. You carry a heavy load of sin. But I have offered to take that load from you. You don't. You keep carrying it around. You ignore all the prophets that I've sent to warn you. You're ignoring them. You've set aside all the prophecies that I gave that told you with pinpoint accuracy how you would behave when you went into the land and what you would do and what I would do. You just blew it off. You watched the northern nation come in, brothers, family, and you went to war, and then you saw what happened to them. Assyria takes them all away. They're all gone. And now that same nation is surrounding you. And during the siege before that happened, 120,000 of you are dead. 200,000 prisoners are gone. What does it take to get your attention? And then they're surrounded. They're watching their enemy eat their food. And Deuteronomy 28 says it is driving them mad. God had disciplined them severely, thoroughly. Isaiah is just giving us the short list here. If you turn to Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, he gives the long list. It shows all the things that God did to discipline them. Fever, animals, and they're even going to eat their own children because they're so hungry. What does it take? He's arguing with them. Listen, would you listen? Would you listen to God's word? I've tried everything. I'm trying to get your attention, and you're ignoring everything that I've done. The way they were reacting to the things that God was doing for them and the revelation that he was giving them was making it worse. Listen, you think judgment is bad now. Do you realize that permanent judgment is coming? There is a hell. Hell is bad. Listen, Sodom and Gomorrah, the reason I'm telling you Sodom and Gomorrah is you're worse than they are. Hell is bad, but there is worse, and you are headed for worse. So this is God's response to the argument. What we read today in verses 10 through here, he is arguing. Where do I get that? It says, look at verse, is it, who has required this of you? What are they saying? The reason he says that, I did not require this of you. They're saying, we're doing everything you required of us. We're doing what you told us to do. So how can you be so mad at us? We're doing everything you said we do. We're going, we're sacrificing. We're having all the festivals, all that mosaic law and everything you told us to do. We're doing it. So how, God, can you be calling us Sodom and Gomorrah? How can you be judging us so severely? Why are you so mad when we're doing everything that you told us to do? 
Now listen, when they went into that temple and they did everything that God told them to do, as they entered that temple, what were they thinking? The Old Testament worship system was designed as an object lesson designed to teach the sons of Abraham that God must be approached in a certain way. Pastors today and all the churches across this land and across this world are teaching how God can be approached their way. We don't teach that here. We teach that God can only be approached one way. What is the way? It is the same way as in the New Testament when Jesus came and he said in John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The way to God today is the same way that the Jews approached God in the Old Testament. Moses did not go to heaven because he obeyed the Mosaic law. Moses gained eternity with Jesus Christ because his brother Aaron sacrificed a lamb and spilt his blood, which God had provided as a substitute for sinners. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies every year, once a year, and place the blood of that sacrifice on the mercy seat between the wings of the cherubim. The mercy seat was a place of blood. It was where God was. You found the presence of God there. Now, you start at the beginning, and you go to where God is. You follow the path that it takes, and what do you see on the way to the presence of God in that mercy seat? Every step, you see Jesus Christ. Look at the path. Along the way, you will see pictures of Jesus. It's a gallery of portraits of Christ everywhere you look. The altar is a cross where he died for us. The laver is a cleansing of the sinner from his daily sins. The seven-branch lampstand presents Jesus as the light of the world. The table of showbread is the bread that shows that Jesus is the bread of life. Behind the altar, <clears throat> you would find a wall, a curtain. When Jesus died on the cross and he cried, it is finished, what happened to that wall? It was rent in two. In a place that was once feared by the high priest because he was afraid to go in to that mercy seat, the holy of holies, into the presence of God, do you know what they did to that high priest? They tied a cord around his ankle, and then somebody would listen in case he sinned in the presence of God, because what would happen if he sinned in the presence of God? He would drop dead, and they would have to pull him out. Don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to be afraid to go in. Why? Because of the work that Jesus Christ did, the veil has been torn, and now we can walk into the presence of God, no longer afraid. And what do we find when we come into the Holy of Holies? We don't find a place of justice. We find a place of mercy. There is the box. And in that box, the Ark of the Covenant is what? The tablets of stone in which the law is written. Jesus had to obey that law perfectly in order to become our substitute. 
His blood was spread on the mercy seat so that now we can come and find forgiveness. And now there's no longer a place of fear. It is not a place of judgment because judgment was taken care of at the cross. Now it is a place of mercy and it is a place where we who deserve to die and suffer severe punishment for our sins, now we can come in a different way and find a place of compassion and love. But they didn't focus on Jesus when they went there. They couldn't have. They were focused on something else, and God doesn't like it. Look what he says. God is not saying when he says, I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams. I've had no pleasure in the blood of bulls. He's not saying that he doesn't like the sacraments. He doesn't like the offerings. That's not what he's saying. Look at how he qualifies it. He says, your appointed feast. He doesn't say my appointed feast. He says yours. This is, not, this is your way of doing it, and you have taken what I have given you, and you've turned it into something that is evil. Now, they would be shocked to hear this. They would not comprehend the wrath that God feels in them because they see it as something to be proud of. It is something that is good. They are something special. God does not see it that way. He says, I've had enough. I take no pleasure of your worthless offerings. Your incense, it's an abomination. I can't endure. I hate. I'm weary. Even Almighty God is getting tired of carrying the heavy load of sin. He is very upset. Their worship is not the worship that he designed for them. Their worship is empty. Now be careful here. Be careful at looking at them and saying, wow, they were really bad people, and say, we don't do that here. You ever thought about Exodus chapter 20, verse 7? You ever done this? He says, don't take the Lord, the name of the Lord God in, what's the word? Vain? What's that word vain mean? Empty? Worthless? Now, have you ever come here and sung a song? Open up the word of God, and you really are thinking about something else? Who's playing football today? Well, I guess we're not doing that anymore, but you're thinking about what's for supper, or did she really wear that? Oh, whatever, okay? You're thinking about something else. It's easy to do. I catch myself doing it. I'll be listening to the song, singing the songs, and I'll go, what did I just say? Because I'm thinking, I'm distracted, I'm thinking about something else. Don't be too hard on these guys. They're going and they're playing church, but their mind is somewhere else. They're supposed to love God. The key to the whole issue of worship is right here. God gets to the heart of the matter. What is the purpose of what they were doing? What are you doing? Why are you doing all these requirements of the law? They were disobeying God's law and offering sacrifices at the same time. They had no desire to put away their sin when they came to church, when they came to worship. First Samuel says, has the Lord as much delight in birth offerings and sacrificing as in obeying the voice of the Lord God? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. 
Hosea says, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than the burnt offerings. What did he just say? He says, they don't know me. They don't know God. Leviticus 5.5 says that he was supposed to do other things too. It says, if he shall confess in that which he has sinned. Faith, repentance, and obedience must accompany the sacrifice. There are five offerings here. He talks about them. He divides them into two categories. He says, I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, and goats. There were five offerings. The first one was the burnt offering. It comes from the word Allah, meaning to go up or ascend. The burnt offering was entirely consumed on the altar except the skin and blood. It is the only offering that was completely consumed. The rest of the animal, after it was, the blood was sprinkled around, was laid out on the altar and burned. This was a voluntary offering, and the whole purpose of this offering was to show their zeal in trying to comply with the religious requirements. The object here was to show complete dedication and consecration to the Lord. So they would come, they would give this voluntary offering to the Lord to show their complete dedication. Were they completely dedicated to the Lord? Not if you're going around and living in sin. It indicated his self-dedication to the worship of God. There was a second offering. It was called the grain offering. Again, this is a voluntary offering. The purpose was to give homage and thanksgiving to God. It is the only non-animal sacrifice. Do you remember Cain's sacrifice? Cain's sacrifice was what? Was it a blood animal? Go back and reevaluate Cain's offering because there was a sacrifice that you could give without sacrificing blood. There was a peace offering. This also was voluntary. It represented the result of what happened when sin was dealt and your relationship with God was restored. It was voluntary and it was a peace offering because it established peace and fellowship with the God that you had sinned against. The second, the last, the fourth and the fifth were the only required sacrifices. It was a sin offering and it was the guilt offering. These were both for unintentional sins, one that could have been done in ignorance or inadvertently. The first one was for where it was possible to make restitution. The second one was where I had a switch. One was where you could not restore. The guilt offering was where restitution was possible. Now, if you intentionally sinned, what offering was available for you? Those were all for unintentional sins. If you sinned intentionally, what was the penalty? What was the offering that you could come give God if you sinned intentionally God? I just defied God. There was none. There was no way you had to suffer separation, judgment. In these sacrifices, when you look at what these sacrifices were, what do you find? First thing you find is atonement. Stop. Put an asterisk by that. We're going to come back to that. You found atonement. You found dedication and consecration to God. You found reconciliation and fellowship with God. You found propitiation. God was satisfied. And you found repentance. Those are all things that Christ provided for us. What did it take for God to provide that for us? It took the character of Christ. It took his sinless nature. 
It took Christ's devotion to the Father. It took the peace, the relationship that his son had with the Father. It took Christ's substitutionary death, and it took the complete work of Jesus on the cross. Now, Jesus Christ is the perfect manifestation of God's demands. Who is the only person that could have been the perfect sacrifice for us all? And what did he have to do to become that? He had to obey the law. Jesus, when he comes, he takes the law and he summarizes it and he puts it and he compacts it down into just two laws. What were the two laws that summarized the whole law? Thou shalt love the Lord God with all thy heart, all thy mind, all thy soul, and with all thy strength. That was the first one. That summarized all the law. The second one was, and love thy neighbor as thyself. Look at Jesus' life in the Gospels. That's exactly what he's doing. What does it take to do that? Look at what Jesus did. The first time I read that, I just gave up. <clears throat> love the Lord God with everything I got. I knew right away that was, that was like jumping to the moon. Can't do it. That is far beyond me. Jesus did it. Do you realize that we're looking at the law right here in Isaiah chapter 1? When we look at the worship system, do you know what that is? That's loving God. And when you look at reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow, what is that? That's the second law. We're looking at the law. And what was it that we said that uh, God wanted from his people? He wanted them to fulfill the law. That's what he wants right here. Now, I said put an asterisk by the word atonement. What does the word atonement mean? Does it mean forgiveness of sins? Help me out here. What is the word atonement? You find atonement. <clears throat> New Testament believer, do you need atonement? No. You don't. <clears throat> Excuse me. Only the Old Testament believer needed atonement. Why? Leviticus chapter 1 Verses 1 through 4, let me read this to you. <clears throat> he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. Now listen, atonement is simply the word lid or covering. When he went in, now think about this, you took an animal you sin, and you're going to offer it him. You took in, you put your hands on the head of that animal that they're about to kill. And then you confess your sins. And then, I was thinking about this. How, what are you thinking when you look into the eyes of that animal? That animal is going to have to die for you. It's going to suffer and it's going to die because of you. Are you really that calloused that you don't see the impact of your sin and how important it is? But listen, he did not find forgiveness, complete forgiveness for those sins. Why? Because then he would have to come back and offer another sacrifice when he sinned again. And then he would have to come back and find another one. So what was he doing? Those sins were not paying for it. They were simply covering them up. That animal blood and life could not pay for those sins. There's only one way that those sins could be paid for. How? 
Jesus Christ. So what happened is when Jesus Christ came, what did he do? He uncovered the Old Testament sinner's sins. He paid for them. And then the way to look at this is a person in the Old Testament looked forward to the cross. New Testament saints do what? We look back to the cross. But the focus and the source of forgiveness of sins is the same for both of us. It is the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, there's a lot of ways to look at the cross. Do you realize that if Jesus Christ had not come, God could have been accused of being unjust? Think about it. Who was God using? If you looked at the men that God was using, Abraham. What kind of man was Abraham? There's something that really bothers me about Abraham. It's the way he treated his wife. Anytime he'd go down, he says, they're going to look at you, and he gave her up. He was a coward. God used this guy. The Abrahamic covenant is a source of all the promises that we have. God used him in a fantastic way, and yet he was a sinner. What about Moses? Was Moses a sinner? He was a murderer. And passed it on to us, thou shalt not murder. He was a murderer. What about David? David, the Abrahamic covenant. The line of the Messiah will come through this man. The Bible says that he had a heart after the heart of God. And yet, what was he? He was an adulterer, and he murdered the woman's husband, trying to cover it up. A good God must punish their sins. So how can he do it? Romans 3 says that when Jesus Christ came, it says it was to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. God put off judgment for them. He simply covered them up. <clears throat> the sins of the men of the Old Testament were only covered. Atonement, kafar, K-A-P-H-A-R, means covered. So, when a man went into the temple, he was only finding atonement and looking forward to the future when God's son would become his own sacrifice. Now, if you are a Jew and you're walking and you're sacrificing an animal, shouldn't they have seen that? They not only had the animal who was only temporary because they had to keep doing it, <clears throat> they had the promises that the Messiah was coming. Couldn't they see in that also the love of God? Evidently, they didn't. I wondered what they were thinking when they did that over and over and over again. It says, when you come before me, in verse 12, <clears throat> God dwelt in the tabernacle. His Shekinah was there. He is saying, this is not what I asked you to do when you come see me. You think you're what you're doing is what I require, but this is not what I required of you. You're trampling my courts. The courts were the open spaces that when you first entered in, the actual tabernacle or the sanctuary was inside it. But there was courts where the offerings were made. He's saying, you're coming in. Only priests were allowed to go into the sanctuary. But when the people came to worship, they come into this court area, and he says, you're trampling. It means to desecrate or crush or ruin something. That's what they were doing. This was not an act of being holy and worshiping God. It was an act of contempt, the way they were doing things. He didn't want their presence. A couple of technical things here. It says 
the new moon, the Sabbath, and then verse 13, if you look at it, those are all singular. What's he talking about here? The Jews started their year every year, like our New Year's in January 1st. Theirs started in October. And it would start with a new moon festival. And that's what he's talking about here. I hate your new moon festival, and these are all singular, actually, in the Hebrew, and your appointed feast. What would happen is that they would start, and it was a sacred time for them, and it would start with the blowing of the trumpets. There were two horns here. One was metal. Anyone could blow the metal one. The other one was a shofar. Do you know what the shofar was made out of? It wasn't metal. It was made out of a what? A ram's horn. Only a leader could blow a ram's horn. One was blown, one toot on the horn, leaders came. If two were blown, all males came to the tabernacle. So they would blow the trumpets, and then they would start these festivals. The first one was the Day of Atonement. No, I'm sorry, on day 10 was the Day of Atonement. It was the holiest day of our years. On the 15th day was the Feast of Tabernacles. That was when the moon was the fullest. They would celebrate God, and they celebrate the care they gave him in the wilderness. <clears throat> Verse 13 also says the Sabbath. The word means a day of rest, and it was properly applied not only to the seventh day, but also the beginning, the first day of these festivals, and the last day of these festivals. Okay? Now, incense. This one got my attention. The incense is if you went into the sanctuary twice a day, the priest would go in, and he would offer up incense to, and then it would carry over into the Holy of Holies. Now, you think about this. Uh, what do you think it smelled like out there when they were killing animal after animal, shedding blood? What do you think it smelled like? Now, I don't know you, but when I drive west in Kansas, uh, and they're killing those cows all the time, I can smell it miles before I get I, Can you imagine what that place smelled like when you walked in? So I can see a, a practical purpose here. Uh, God didn't want to sit there and smell that all day, but, okay. So it was a perfume. It was something that smelled good. Now, there's a couple of things here, and I'm, I'm running out of time, so I'll quit here. There's a level of intimacy here with the subject of the incense, because the incense, if you turn to numbers, and I'm running out of time, so I'm going to hurry here, it was a perfume. It was something that had a special formula, and God put the death penalty on anybody who used it other for him. In fact, there's an example in Leviticus where two guys did, and they used it other than this, and God killed them like that. Why? It was sacred. It was something for him only. It was something between his wife and him. Only they would have this perfume. There's something else here, too. I wondered, what does incense represent? Everything in here represents incense. And there's two verses. Psalm 141 says, let my prayer rise up to you as incense. It's connected with prayer. Revelation 5 helps a little bit. Jesus Christ has just taken, he's going to take the, the book or the scroll out of the Father's hand. And what is it? It's permission. It's everything he needs to go and take, does that. Something happens. What is it? The four seraphim and the 24 elders come, and they're carrying something. 
And they're carrying these, and there are articles that are used in the temple. If you see these vessels, how they're described, it's the same vessels that they use in the sanctuary. And what is it full of? It's full of incense. And what does it say in Revelation chapter 5 that the incense is? It is the prayer of the saints. Now, it tells me something. Now, you guys, every day you pray, you pray the way God taught you to pray, right? You pray, uh, Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's the next thing you pray for? Thy kingdom come. Okay, you ever think, is that really a big deal? It is a big deal. It's a really big deal because that's exactly the prayers that are in that vessel. God will not do anything until you pray for it. You know what it is connected to? It's connected to the prophecies of the kingdom coming. It has been prophesied that Jesus will do what he's about to do, but God's not going to fulfill that prophecy until what? Until you pray for it. Stop about That's really important. Think about this. You have promises in the Word of God. Are they all being fulfilled? Are they all happening? Why? God's waiting for something. What's He waiting for? He's waiting for the incense. He's waiting for you to pray for Him. Do you realize how important your prayers are? If you look through all the book of the Revelations and their stages, if you read the whole book, notice something. He'll stop and He'll wait. And they'll have a praise service, and they'll have a prayer service, and then they'll go on, and then they'll stop. They'll have a prayer service. They'll have a praise service. They go on. What's he doing? He's not going to do it without you. Oh, he's capable of doing it. Oh, he wants to do it, and he's promised he'll do it. But what's he waiting on? You have not because you ask not.